Chapter 14 of From Ritual to Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dawn Esai. Chapter 14 The Author. Having now completed our survey of the various elements which have entered into the composite fabric of the Grail legend, the question naturally arises where and when did that legend assume romantic form, and to whom should we ascribe its literary origin? On these crucial points the evidence at our disposal is far from complete, and we can do little more than offer suggestions towards the solution of the problem. With regard to the first point, that of locality, the evidence is unmistakably in favour of a Celtic, specifically a Welsh, source. As a literary theme, the Grail is closely connected with the Arthurian tradition. The protagonist is one of Arthur's knights, and the hero of the earlier version, Gawain, is more closely connected with Arthur than are his successors Percival and Galahad. The Celtic origin of both Gawain and Percival is beyond doubt, and the latter is not merely a Celt, but is definitely Welsh. He is always Lee Galois. Galahad I hold to be a literary and not a traditional hero. He is the product of deliberate literary invention and has no existence outside the frame of the later cyclic redactions. It is not possible at the present moment to say whether the quest was composed in the British Isles or on the continent but we may safely lay it down as a basic principle that the original Grail heroes are of insular origin and that the Grail legend in its romantic and literary form is closely connected with British pseudo-historical tradition, the beliefs and practices of which, if the theory maintained in these pages be correct, the Grail stories offer a more or less coherent survival can be shown on the evidence of historic monuments and surviving folk customs to have been popular throughout the area of the British Isles, while with regard to the higher teaching of which I hold these practices to have been the vehicle, Pliny comments upon the similarity existing between the ancient Magiognosis and the Druidical Gnosis of Gaul and Britain, an indication which, in the dearth of accurate information concerning the teaching of the Druids, is of considerable value. As we noted in the previous chapter, an interesting parallel exists between Wales and localities such as the Alps and the Vosges, where we have definite proof that these mystery cults lingered on after they had disappeared from public celebration. The chart appended to Gaumont's Monuments de Mithra shows Mithraic remains in precisely the locality where we have reason to believe certain of the Gawain and Percival stories to have originated. As to the date of origin, that, of course, is closely connected with the problem of authorship. If we can, with any possibility, identify the author, we can approximately fix the date. So far as the literary evidence is concerned, we have no trace of the story before the 12th century. But when we do meet with it, it is already in complete and crystallized form. More, there is already evidence of competing versions. We have no existing Grail romance which we can claim to be free from contamination and representing in all respects the original form. 
There is no need here to go over old and well-trodden ground. In my studies of the Percival legend and in the later popular resume of the evidence, The Quest of the Holy Grail, I have analysed the text and shown that, while the poem of Cretine de Troyes is our earliest surviving literary version, there is the strongest possible evidence that Cretine, as he himself admits, was not inventing but retelling an already popular tale. The Grail quest was a theme which had been treated not once nor twice, but of which numerous and conflicting versions were already current. And when Vauchia de Nanin undertook to complete Cretine's unfinished work, he drew largely upon these already existing forms, regardless of the fact that they not only contradicted the version they were ostensibly completing, but were impossible to harmonize with each other. It is of importance for our investigation, however, to note that Rivarchia does refer to a definite source, it is to an evidently important and already famous collection of tales, Le Grand Conte, comprising several branches, the hero of the collection being not Cretine's hero Percival, but Gawain, who, both in pseudo-historic and romantic tradition, is far more closely connected with the Arthurian legend occupying, as he does, the traditional position of nephew, sister's son to the monarch, who is the centre of the cycle, even as Cuculin is sister's son to Conchobar, Dermid to Finn, Tristan to Mark, and Roland to Charlemagne. In fact, this relationship was so obviously required by tradition that we find Percival figuring now as sister's son to Arthur, now to the Grail King, according as the Arthurian or the Grail tradition dominates the story. The actual existence of such a group of tales as those referred to by Varchia derives confirmation from our surviving Gawain poems, as well as from the references in the elucidation and on the evidence at our disposal. I have ventured to suggest the hypothesis of a group of poems dealing with the adventures of Gawain, his son and brother, the ensemble being originally known as The Jest of Sir Gawain, a title which, in the inappropriate form, The Jest of Sir Gawain, is preserved in the English version of that hero's adventure with the sister of Brandelis. So keen a critic as Dr. Brugger has not hesitated to accept the theory of the existence of this jest, and is of opinion that the German poem Jokon may in part at least be derived from this source. The central adventure ascribed to Gawain in this group of tales is precisely the visit to the Grail Castle, to which we have already referred, and we have pointed out that the manner in which it is related, its directness, simplicity and conformity with what we know of the mystery teaching, presumably involved, taken in connection with the personality of the hero and his position in Arthurian romantic tradition, appear to warrant us in assigning to it the position of priority among the conflicting versions we possess. At two points in the retelling of these Gawain tales, Vauchia definitely refers to the author by name, Blairus. On the second occasion, he states categorically that this Blairus was of Welsh birth and origin, ne et ingenue en gals and that he told the tale in connection with which the statement is made to a certain Comte de Poitiers, 
whose favorite story it was. He loved it above all others, which would imply that it was not the only tale Blerius had told him. As we have seen in a previous chapter, the elucidation prefaces its account of the Grail quest by a solemn statement of the gravity of the subject to be treated, and a warning of the penalties which would follow on a careless revelation of the secret. These warnings are put into the mouth of a certain Master Blehus, concerning whom we hear no more. A little further on in the poem we meet with the knight, Blehus Blearus, who made prisoner by Gawain, reveals to Arthur and his court the identity of the maidens wandering in the woods, of the fisher king and the grail, and is so good a storyteller that none can weary of listening to his tales. Again, in the fragmentary remains of Thomas's Tristan, we have a passage in which the poet refers, as source, to a certain Brary, who knew all the feats and all the tales of all the kings and all the counts who had lived in Britain. Finally, Geraldus Cambrensis refers to Famusus Elia Fabulator, Bledericus, who had lived shortly before our time, and whose renown he evidently takes for granted, was familiar to his readers. Now are we to hold that the Blerus, who, according to Varsia, had told tales concerning Gawain and Arthur's court, one of which tales was certainly the Grail adventure, the master Blehus, who knew the Grail mystery and gave solemn warning against its revelation. The Blehus Blehirus, who knew the Grail and many other tales, the Brary, who knew all the legendary tales concerning the princes of Britain, and the famous storyteller, Bledhericus, of whom Geralda speaks, are distinct and separate personages, all mere inventions of the separate writers. Or do all these passages refer to one and the same individual, who, in that case, may well have deserved the Title Famosus Il Fabulator. With regard to the attitude taken up by certain critics, that no evidential value can be attached to these references, I would point out that when medieval writers quote an authority for these statements, they, as a rule, refer to a writer whose name carries weight and will impress their readers. They are offering a guarantee for the authenticity of these statements. The special attribution may be purely fictitious, but the individual referred to enjoys an established reputation. Thus, the later cyclic redactions of the Arthurian romances are largely attributed to Walter Mapp, who, in view of his public position and political activities, could certainly never have had the leisure to compose one half of the literature with which he is credited. In the same way, Robert de Boron, Cretine de Troyes, Wolfram from Eschenbach, are all referred to as sources without any justification in fact. Nor is it probable that Varsia, who wrote on the continent and who, if he be really Varsia de Danane, was under the patronage of the Count of Flanders, would have gone out of his way to invent a Welsh source. Judging from analogy, the actual existence of a personage named Blairus who enjoyed a remarkable reputation as a storyteller, is prima facie extremely probable. But are these references independent? Was there more than one Blairus? I think not. The name is a proper and not a family name. In the latter case, it might be possible to argue that we are dealing with separate members of a family or group of bardic poets. 
whose office it was to preserve and relate the national legends. But we are dealing with variants of a proper name, and that of distinctly insular and Welsh origin. The original form, Bledry, was by no means uncommon in Wales. From that point of view, there might well have been four or five or even more of that name, but that each and all of these should have possessed the same qualifications should have been equally well-versed in popular traditions, equally dowered with the gift of storytelling, on equally friendly terms with the Norman invaders, and equally possessed of such a knowledge of the French language as should permit them to tell these stories in that tongue, is, I submit, highly improbable. This latter point, i.e. the knowledge of French, seems to me to be of crucial importance given the relations between conqueror and conquered, and the intransigent character of Welsh patriotism, the men who were on sufficiently friendly terms with the invaders to be willing to relate the national legends, with an assurance of finding a sympathetic hearing, must have been few and far between. I do not think the importance of this point has been sufficiently grasped by critics. The problem then is to find a Welshman who, living at the end of the 11th and commencement of the 12th centuries, was well versed in the legendary lore of Britain, was of sufficiently good status to be well received at court, possessed a good knowledge of the French tongue, and can be shown to have been on friendly terms with the Norman nobles. Mr. Edward Owen of the Simradorian Society has suggested that a certain Welsh noble, Bledry Arcapivore, fulfills in a large measure the conditions required. Some years ago, I published in the Review Celtique a letter in which Mr. Owen summarized the evidence at his disposal. As the review in question may not be easily accessible to some of my readers, I will recapitulate the principal points. The father of Bledry, Cardivore, was a great personage in West Wales, and is looked upon as the ancestor of the most important families in the ancient Diophed, a division now represented by Pembrokeshire and the western portion of Carmarthen. We may note here that the traditional tomb of Gawain is at Ross in Pembrokeshire, and that there is reason to believe that the Percival story, in its earliest form, was connected with that locality. Cadivore had three sons, of whom Bledry was the eldest, Thus, at his father's death, he would be head of this ancient and distinguished family. At the division of the paternal estates, Bledry inherited, as his share, lands ranging along the right bank of the Lower Tawy and the coast of South Pembrokeshire, extending as far as Manobia, the birthplace of Geraldus Cambrensis. This is again a geographical indication which should be borne in mind. Cadivor himself appears to have been on friendly terms with the Normans. He is said to have entertained William the Conqueror on his visit to St. David's in 1080, while every reference we have to Bledry shows him in close connection with the invaders. Thus, in 1113, the Brute E. Tewisogian mentions his name as ally of the Norman knights in their struggle to maintain their ground in and around Carmarthen. In 1125, we find his name as donor of lands to the Augustinian Church of St. John the Evangelist and St. Theoloch of Carmarthen, newly founded by Henry I. 
Here his name appears with a significant title, Latinarius, the interpreter, a qualification repeated in subsequent charters of the same collection. In one of these we find Griffith, the son of Bledry, confirming his father's gift. Professor Lloyd, in an article in Archaeologia Cambrensis, July 1907, has examined these charters and considers the grant to have been made between 1129 and 1134, the charter itself being of the reign of Henry I, 1101-1135. In the pipe roll of Henry I, 1131, Bledris's name is entered as debtor for a fine incurred by the killing of a Fleming by his men. While a highly significant entry records the fine of seven marks imposed upon a certain Bledon of Maybedrad and his brothers for outraging Bledry's daughter. When we take into consideration the rank of Bledry, this insult to his family by a fellow Welshman would seem to indicate that his relations with his compatriots were not of a specially friendly character. Mr. Owen also points out that portion of the Bruti Tawisogian which covers the years 1101-20, to 20, especially to the events of the year 1113, where we find Bledry and other friendly Welsh nobles holding the castle of Carmarthen for the Normans against the Welsh, is related at an altogether disproportionate length and displays a strong bias in favour of the invaders. The year just referred to, for instance, occupies more than twice the space assigned to any other year. Mr. Owen suggests that here Bledry himself may well have been the chronicler, a hypothesis which, if he really be the author we are seeking, is quite admissible. So far as indications of date are concerned, Bledry probably lived between the years 1070 to 1150. His father Cadivore died in 1089 and his lands were divided between his sons, of whom Bledry, as we have seen, was the eldest. Thus, they cannot have been children at that date. Bledry, at least, would have been born before 1080. From the evidence of the pipe roll, we know that he was living in 1131. The charter signed by his son, confirmatory of his grant, must have been subsequent to 1148, as it was executed during the Episcopate of David. Bishop of St. David's, 1148 to 1176. Thus, the period of 80 years suggested above, 1070 to 1150, may be taken as covering the extreme limit to be assigned to his life and activity. The passage in which Geraldus Cambrensis refers to Bledhericus, Famosus il fabulator who tempora nostra paula prevenit, was written about 1194. Thus, it might well refer to a man who had died some 40 or 50 years previously. As we have noted above, Geraldus was born upon ground, forming a part of Bledry's ancestral heritage and thus might well be familiar with his fame. The evidence is of course incomplete, but it does provide us with a personality fulfilling the main conditions of a complex problem. Thus, we have a man of the required name and nationality, living at an appropriate date, of the requisite social position, on excellent terms with the French nobles, and so well acquainted with their language as to sign himself officially the interpreter. We have no direct evidence of his literary skill, 
or knowledge of the traditional history of his country. But a man of his birth could scarcely have failed to possess the latter, while certain peculiarities in that section of the National Chronicle, which deals with the aid given by him to the Norman invaders, would seem to indicate that Bledry himself may well have been responsible for the record. Again, we know him to have been closely connected with the locality from which came the writer, who refers to the famous storyteller of the same name. I would submit that we have here quite sufficient evidence to warrant us in accepting Bledry Apkadivor as, at least, the possible author of the Romantic Grail tradition. In any case, so far, there is no other candidate in the field. Shortly after the publication of the second volume of my Postival Studies, I received a letter from Professor Singer, in which, after expressing his general acceptance of the theories there advanced, in especial of the suggested date and relation of the different versions, which he characterized as Sir Gelungen und zu meiner Altsung der Entwicklung der Altranzostischen Literatur sehr zu stimmen, he proceeded to comment upon the probable character of the literary activity of Blairus. His remarks are so interesting and suggestive that I venture to submit them for the consideration of my readers. Professor Singer points out that in Eilhard von Oberger's Tristan, we find the name in the form of Plerin attached to a knight of Mark's court. The same name in a slightly varied form, Felerin, occurs in the Tristan of Heinrich von Freiburg. Both poems, Professor Singer considers, are derived from a French original. Under a compound form, Blihos or Bleeris, he appears in the Gawain Grail compilation as a knight at Arthur's court. Now, Brary Bleeris is referred to as authority alike in the Tristan, Grail and Gawain tradition. And Professor Singer makes the interesting suggestion that these references are originally due to Blairus himself, who not only told the stories in the third person, a common device at that period, versus Cretin's Eric and Gerbert's continuation of the Percival, but also introduced himself as eyewitness of and actor in a subordinate role in the incidents he recorded. Thus, in the Tristan, he is a knight of Mark's, in the elucidation and the Gawain stories, a knight of Arthur's court. Professor Singer instances the case of Dares in the Exidio Trajay and Bishop Pilgrim of Passau in the Los Nibinlungias of his secretary, Conrad, as illustrations of the theory. If this be the case, such a statement as that which we find in Varsia regarding Blairus's birth and origin would have emanated from Blairus himself, and simply been taken over by the later writer from his source. He incorporated the whole tale of the shield as it stood, a quite natural and normal proceeding. Again, this suggestion would do away with the necessity for postulating a certain lapse of time before the storyteller Blairus could be converted into an Arthurian knight. The two roles, Gewassmann und Mithandelenden, as Professor Singer expresses it, are coincident in date. I would also suggest that the double form, Blihos Bliheris, would have been adopted by the author himself to indicate the identity of the two, Blihis and Bliheris. It is worthy of note 
that when dealing directly with the Grail, he assumes the title of Master, which would seem to indicate that here he claimed to speak with special authority. I sent the letter in question to the late Mr. Alfred Nutt, who was forcibly struck with the possibilities involved in the suggestion, the full application of which he thought the writer had not grasped. I quote the following passages from the long letter I received from him in return. Briefly put, we presuppose the existence of a set of semi-dramatic, semi-narrative poems in which a blade refigures as an active and at the same time a recording personage. Now that such a body of literature may have existed, we are entitled to assume from the fact that two such have survived, one from Wales in the Lyewatch Hen Cycle, the other from Ireland in the Finn Saga. In both cases, the fact that the descriptive poems are put in the mouth, in Wales of Lyewatch, in Ireland largely of Oisin, led to the ascription at an early date of the whole literature to Lyewash and Oisin. It is therefore conceivable that a Welsh literature, familiar as he must have been with the Lyewatch, and as he quite possibly was with the Oisin, instance should cast his version of the Arthurian stories in a similar form, and that facts noted by you and Singer may be thus explained. Now that both Professor Singer, who has an exceptionally wide knowledge of medieval literature, and the late Mr. Alfred Nutt knew what they were talking about, does not need to be emphasized, and the fact that two such competent authorities should agree upon a possible solution of a puzzling literary problem makes that solution worthy of careful consideration. It would certainly have the merit of simplifying the question and deserves to be placed upon record. But while it would of course be far more satisfactory could one definitely place and label, the man to whom we owe the original conception, which gave birth and impetus to this immortal body of literature, yet the precise identity of the author of the earliest Grail romance is of the accident rather than the essence of our problem. Whether Blairus the Welshman be or be not identical with Bledry Upcardivore, interpreter and friend of the Norman nobles, the general hypothesis remains unaffected and may be thus summarised. The Grail story is not Dufont en Comble, the product of imagination, literary or popular. At its root lies the record, more or less distorted, of an ancient ritual, having for its ultimate object the initiation into the secret of the sources of life, physical and spiritual. This ritual, in its lower exoteric form, as affecting the processes of nature and physical life, survives today and can be traced all over the world, in folk ceremonies, which, however widely separated the countries in which they are found, show a surprising identity of detail and intention. In its esoteric mystery form, it was freely utilized for the imparting of high spiritual teaching concerning the relation of man to the divine source of his being, and the possibility of a sensible union between man and God. The recognition of the cosmic activities of the Logos appears to have been a characteristic feature of this teaching, and when Christianity came upon the scene, it did not hesitate to utilize the already existing medium of instruction, but boldly identified the deity of vegetation, regarded as life principle, with the God of the Christian faith.
thus to certain of the early christians Attis was but an earlier manifestation of the logos whom they held identical with christ the evidence of the nascene document places this beyond any shadow of doubt and is of inestimable value as establishing a link between pre-christian and christian mystery tradition this curious synthetic belief united as it was with the highly popular cult of mithra travelled with the foreign legionaries adherents of that cult to the furthest bounds of the roman empire and when the struggle between mithraism and christianity ended in the definite triumph of the latter by virtue of that dual synthetic nature the higher rituals still survived and were celebrated in sites removed from the centres of population in caves and mountain fastnesses in islands and on desolate sea coasts the earliest version of the grail story represented by our blairus form relates the visit of a wandering knight to one of these hidden temples his successful passing of the test into the low grade of life initiation his failure to attain to the highest degree it matters little whether it were the record of an actual or of a possible experience the casting into romantic form of an event which the storyteller knew to have happened had perchance actually witnessed or the objective recital of what he knew might have occurred the essential fact is that the mise en scene of the story the nomenclature the march of incident the character of the tests correspond to what we know from independent sources of the details of this nature ritual the grail quest was actually possible then it is actually possible today for the indication of two of our romances as to the final location of the grail is not imagination but the record of actual fact as first told the story preserved its primal character of a composite between christianity and the nature ritual as witnessed by the ceremony over the bier of the dead knight the procession with cross and incense and the solemn vespers for the dead this i suspect correctly represents the final stage of the process by which attis adonis was identified with christ thus in its first form the story was the product of conscious intention but when the tale was once fairly launched as a romantic tale and came into the hands of those unfamiliar with its ritual origin though the fact that it had such an origin was probably well understood the influence of the period came into play the crusades and the consequent traffic in relics especially in relics of the passion caused the identification of the sex symbols lance and cup with the weapon of the crucifixion and the cup of the last supper but the christianization was merely external the tale as a whole retaining its pre-christian character the conversion into a definitely christian romance seems to have been due to two causes first the rivalry between the two great monastic houses of glastonbury and Fezcamp, the latter of which was already in possession of a genuine saint saying relic and fully developed tradition there is reason to suppose that the initial combination of the grail and saint saying traditions took place at Fezcamp, and was the work of some member of the minstrel guild attached to the abbey but the grail tradition was originally british glastonbury was from time immemorial a british sanctuary it was the reputed burial place of arthur of whose court the grail quest was the crowning adventure 
the story must be identified with British soil. Consequently, a version was composed, now represented by our Pearl of View text, in which the Union of Nicodemus of Fezcamp and Joseph of Glastonbury, fame as ancestors of the Grail hero, offers a significant hint of the provenance of the version. Secondly, a no less important element in the process was due to the conscious action of Robert de Boron, who well understood the character of his material and radically remodelled the whole on the basis of the triple mystery tradition translated into terms of high Christian mysticism. A notable feature of Baron's version is his utilisation of the tradition of the final messianic feast, in combination with his Eucharistic symbolism, a combination thoroughly familiar to early Christian mystics. Once started on a definitely romantic career, the Grail story rapidly became a complex of originally divergent themes, the most important stage in its development being the incorporation of the popular tale of the widow's son, brought up in the wilderness and launched into the world in a condition of absolute ignorance of men and manners. The Percival story is a charming story, but it has originally nothing whatever to do with the Grail. The original tale, now best represented by our English Sir Percival of Gales, has no trace of mystery element. It is folklore, pure and simple. I believe the connection with the Grail legend to be purely fortuitous, and due to the fact that the hero of a folk tale was known as the widow's son, which he actually was, while this title represented in mystery terminology a certain grade of initiation and as such is preserved today in Masonic ritual. Finally, the rising tide of dogmatic medievalism, with its crassly materialistic view of the Eucharist, its insistence on the saving grace of asceticism and celibacy, and its scarcely veiled contempt for women, overwhelmed the original conception. Certain of the features of the ancient ritual indeed survive, but they are factors of confusion rather than clues to enlightenment. Thus, while the grail still retains its character of a feeding vessel, comes and goes without visible agency, and supplies each knight with such food and drink as he best loved in the world, it is nonetheless the chalice of the sacred blood, and critics are sorely put to it to harmonize these conflicting aspects. In the same way, Galahad's grandfather still bears the title of the rich fisher, and there are confused references to a land laid waste as the result of a dolorous stroke. But while the terminology lingers on to our perplexity, the characters involved lie outside the march of the story. Practically no trace of the old nature ritual survives in the final quest form. The remodeling is so radical that it seems most reasonable to conclude that it was purposeful, that the original author of the quest had a very clear idea of the real nature of the grail, and was bent upon a complete restatement in terms of current orthodoxy. I advisedly use this term, as I see no trace in the quest of a genuine mystic conception, such as that of Boron. So far as criticism of the literature is concerned, I adhere to my previously expressed opinion that the quest should be treated rather as a Lancelot, than as a grail romance. It is of real importance in the evolution of the Arthurian romantic cycle as a factor in determining the true character and origins of the grail legend. It is worse than useless. 
what remains of the original features is so fragmentary and so distorted that any attempt to use the version as basis for argument or comparison can only introduce a further element of confusion into an already more than sufficiently involved problem. I am also still of opinion that the table of descent given on page 283 of volume 2 of my Percival studies represents the most probable evolution of the literature. At the same time, in the light of further research, I should feel inclined to add the Grail section of Sonne de Nansai, as deriving from the same source which gave us Kiot's poem and the Parlevue. As evidence for a French original combining important features of these two versions, and at the same time retaining unmistakably archaic elements which have disappeared from both, I hold this section of the poem to be of extreme value for the criticism of the cycle. While there are still missing links in the chain of descent, versions to be reconstructed, writers to be identified, I believe that in its ensemble the theory set forth in these pages will be found to be the only one which will satisfactorily meet all the conditions of the problem, which will cover the whole ground of investigation, omitting no element, evading no difficulty, which will harmonize apparently hopeless contradictions, explain apparently meaningless terminology, and thus provide a secure foundation for the criticism of a body of literature as important as it is fascinating. The study and the criticism of the grey literature will possess an even deeper interest, a more absorbing fascination, when it is definitely recognized that we possess in that literature a unique example of the restatement of an ancient and august ritual in terms of imperishable romance. End of chapter 14 End of From Ritual to Romance by Jesse Laidley Weston Recorded by Dawn Esai, Pretoria, South Africa, 14 May 2021